my wife uh, contracted Bell's palsy uh, when she was in her third trimester, that advanced pregnancy. And we were on Malta doing the Popeye movie. Of course, Popeye is about a man who had facial asymmetry. So very interesting. And she yeah. had, and she has, uh, my father was a neurologist. And of course, I called him from the Mediterranean. In those days, you were on a cable under the sea. And it was very difficult to hear. And he asked if she had been around any big wind. Of course, the fact is, we were on a promontory on an island in the Mediterranean with harsh winds. And that was, of course, in you know, horizontal rain. So that she got Bell's palsy and, uh, and suffered the indignity of asymmetry for many years. I mean, you can, now you can tell that she, she had it, but it's still, but the thing is, uh, but, and after you discovered, when, what, how long did it take from the time that you discovered it to the time that you had some a medical officer pay attention to you? Well, I, I, uh, I was able. I went to the the urgent care, which you know was uh, again. This was this was early April in Queens, so I felt like I was risking my health doing that. But I was able to be seen and was given some steroids. Um, the the unfortunate thing, however, you know they didn't they they didn't help immediately. I was recommended acupuncture by a lot of people. It's interesting that you mentioned when because the woman who does the acupuncture also mention it, which I, I think it's rooted in uh, Chinese medicine, the notion of um, of bad wind causing facial paralysis. My father said, my father said when I told him that I thought uh, that my wife had a, had a uh, stroke perhaps, and I just, just describing her malady, he said, has she been around any harsh winds? Of course. And I said, I, and I told him, and then he said, I suspect that she has, what they call is trucker's disease. Now, the reason they call it truck, trucker's disease because that the incidence of truckers, that people moving semis down the highway, had a tendency to be in the harsh wind, would leave their windows open, and that many, many contracted that, that they believed that it, was, that it is a virus, but they did not know what the, what the real seat of this problem is, that it is viral, they believe. But this is when I was speaking with my dad in 1980. So, but uh, all I can tell you is pretty is as pretty does. You will recover. You will get back that, that symmetry. I hope that, that my telling you I know what it's about and the difficulties I know are great. And it's an indignity. But you will recover from it. And, um, and I'm proud of you for your courage. And, and, um, and I wish you the best of health. Now, how can we be trivial? Let's talk about music. Let me start with my most trivial question on the list right now, which is okay. <laughs> has to do with two very trivial things, but one of which I suspect you take somewhat seriously. I've noticed a very common occurrence on your Twitter feed, which is the, the celebration of, of birthdays. What is the importance of birthdays to you? When you examine the people who have preceded us, inspect their deeds, that what could be a better time to do it than on their birthdays? Taking their birthdays into account, you find out that people have done things. You know, many people go ahead at, at my age, I'm 77, will uh, read the obituaries because a lot of them want to know who's de dead that we know. But part of this is not a morbid curiosity, but a desire to learn something about 
with whom have we been? Who are these people around us? What have they done? The people of our time and the people that preceded us. And there's something to be learned by observing the acts of people on their birthday. There's something to be learned. And it is a way for me to learn what I may have missed. And that's why I do that. And I think, and I think it's for the common good that I do it. And, um, yeah, I, can, I, I treat it as, as a great responsibility and, uh, and, a, and a joy. It's interesting that you bring up aging and morbid curiosity uh, when, when discussing people's birthdays. And, and I'm curious, as you get older and as time does become more precious, how does that impact the drive and the desire to make music? Well, nothing has changed for me. I've always had an urgency that was uh, inbred by my parents. I've always seen that there was no delay in justice. Everything was immediate, as it is with me. It doesn't take time for me to deliberate. I've always felt compel- compelled to do my best always. So nothing's really changed. Time is still the enemy. In 2015, you gave what you said at the time was your final piano performance, and I know that has to do with um, a surgery and a, a, a hand injury. How has that impacted your relationship with music? Oh, well, it was a terrible thing for me to get, uh, in a, often the first, my first notice of uh, Trigger Finger was in a, playing a, a Scarlatti encore at Berlin's Passionkirche. It's the name of the venue, Passion Church. And uh, I was uh, on an encore, and all of a sudden I had to slow down a whole bunch. On the encore, everybody thought, well, maybe I was feeling a little emotional about it. I wasn't emotional. I was simply trying to get through it with, with uh, four fingers instead of five. But that disability uh, caused, and then it, it provoked my, my retirement, my announcement that I was doing my last show. And I, that was after I had had this, the same experience in, in Australia and the Adelaide Festival, I, I had the same trigger finger. Uh, and so for a person who's, who grew up in a family with two, two grand pianos in the living room and sometimes eight hands flying with piano literature at one time, that's where I'm from, music, all music, the living room filled with two pianos, one of them I still have, the Steinway is here, that my grandfather got for his wife on March 11, 1911, the day my dad was born. It's called a matrimonial gift. Matrimonial gift what came when the bride turned, turned out to be a mother, became a mother. And that's when Steinway and Chickering and the other great uh, courts, while and all of these, Kurtzmann, all of these great rec, uh, piano companies would, would advertise, like they say, a diamond is forever. Well, it was kind of like an ad slogan. You got, if you wanted to be somebody and you were middle class and you wanted refinement, you had a piano in a house. Well, we had two of them. And then ultimately, uh, the parts turned out to be very musical. I came from a family that my dad had a dance band to get through med school. Um, one time, there were 47 known in the... Uh, in the band in the gazebo at the uh, at the fireman's at the carnival at the fireman's ball on July 4th in Leechburg, Pennsylvania. That's where my father grew up. They Parks could play instruments all over the place. My dad played uh, with Susan's 60 silver trumpet. 
my dad played clarinet with that with that massive band. But you see, so music was all part of my life, and to lose the ability of my hands was a very grave threat to my very to my to my being. I always imagined myself as a pianist composer, and I got some of my ideas from the best ideas I got were from 19th century pianist composers, Schumann and Schubert, and people of that sort. I learned tricks from those people. Techniques, how to play piano and make a pianistic uh, accompaniment, bed for the voice and the emotions that the, vo- that the, uh, the vocalist was experiencing. But those things were all realized in piano music, and that's what I was all about. And then in the middle of my life, to have that all come crashing to the floor was a great shock. Recently, I have recovered uh, a great deal of my ability. I can play spotily. I can still play the Chopin G minor ballad. I can play, I can play a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, Granados, whose birthday is today, I play the Spanish composers. So I keep my hat in the ring, and I'm still, but I am a shadow of my former self. That is, every day, from the head to the hand, it becomes a greater distance. I am not what I was in my, my salad years when I was in the best shape. But I can still trash a Steinway. I can still make my way around a piano, and I still consider myself a, a shadow of my former ability. I still, still show signs of velocity and, and strength. Not quite so loud, perhaps. Does an event like that impact your composing as well, or is it really just limited to the performance? I sometimes I'll find something that I like. For example, in Orange Crate Art, I enjoyed the progression so much. I started at an E-flat. It, 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 I kept the, the, the tune, the, the, the progression of Orange Crate Art came to me as a piano exercise uh, in, um, oh, I don't know, about 1994, somewhere in there. And I enjoyed the, the mathematics of the piece. It seemed like a great, a great piece of music to me from a pianistic standpoint. I like the... I like the the, uh, the the mathematics of the piece. I like the... I like the piece. I, and then, then I struggled with it. I don't realize I would be going back into the studio. And then I, so I, I put those, those two and two things together, a, a piece that had been plaguing me. And then I hammered out some words that related to something that I thought was very much a part of the California experience. And that is orange great art, something that I had seen and enjoyed, brought me here, and uh, the propagandist art of the uh, 1880s through uh, uh, the first uh, two uh, decades of the 20th century, for sure. The art that they put on Orange Crate, that to convince everyone that they should come out here 
to these checkerboarded Indian lands and arrive in Eden and the Garden of Eden that California would become. So, yeah, I wanted to write about California, and I want, and so that piece became my the gateway into this next project, which has just been really given a, 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 its first fair shake at being available. You know, Orange Crate Art was about as available uh, at, when it first came out as um, as viral testing is in Trump's America. You couldn't get there in spite of the promises. It wasn't distributed, it wasn't promoted, and it sank like a stone. And then somehow or another, somebody decided that, at Omnivore Records decided to be nice and put it out, which was, to me, great, a great, wonderful thing. I looked at it with great humility and joy. So many people I know that I respect, look up to, don't have this opportunity. So I got to be heard. And that's what this record is. And... To me, it's beyond. Uh, to me, it is uh, beyond critical analysis. It's a matter of the heart. It's irrational. There's no reason for it. It's passe, and it has to do with the high fidelity on all levels. And that's why I did it. I wanted to be hi-fi. I wanted to do analog music, and I wanted to do it with a friend with whom I'd had some celebrity. And uh, uh, both uh, both positive and negative, but had been through a lot with Brian Wilson, and so everything just kind of fell into shape. You know, it's like it became there was nothing really volunteer about it. It was just a mess. It, it just took its course, and and I followed my nose on it, not knowing where it might take us. And I like every one of those songs. And there's blood on the tracks. And there are, there are people that are not with us now, whose hearts we leave behind, that we'll never know that we finally had a valid validation of getting out of the parking lot with this record. Brian is obviously somebody who you've collaborated with a, a few times over, over the years. Um, what, what do you generally look for in a collaborator? What, what makes for an ideal collaborator for you? Uh, an ideal collaborator should know how to say something wrong if that's all he can do to bring you to the right conclusion. Uh, collaboration is an adversarial relationship because it requires such mutual inspection and judgment. But at the same time, it is potentially one of the greatest exercises in empathy and mutual respect. It is ultimately mutually empowering. But you see, and I always find the job that nobody else wants. I don't want to compete with anybody for a job. That that would be stupid. Work isn't the answer. Control is the answer. Wanting neither of them, uh, I always find myself put into a position of doing something that nobody else wants to do. And in this case, Brian did not want to orchestrate or compose his way through another record. As a matter of fact, he didn't even want to be in a studio at that point. And yet, I felt that it was an obligation of industry. They weren't paying any attention to him. They weren't paying any attention to me, really. I was just doing this. This is my last hurrah, my Hail Mary. 
as I hit the, the end zone, Warner Brothers label. And um, I'm just happy that, that we got these world reversals in place that, that, that I was all of a sudden, the choir wasn't, uh, <laughs> it was uh, no time for Chicken Little. I had, to, I had to step up to the plate and do what's my best uh, to capture the spirit of this place to give people a sense of place that don't have one, hoping that they would take some joy in this musical reflection. That's why I turned to the underpinnings of folk music here, you know, the reminiscences of hymns and, and barbershop quartet quality, things that, that I shared with Brian as child, uh, in our childhood. Uh, and come uh, to me, it was totally unpremeditated and, um, and, and, and very sweet. I loved it. Uh, it was a road less traveled I wish I could travel uh, on again. And, and uh, I enjoyed the fact when the record came out that they put it, they put it with, the, with the vocals and then without the vocals, they, 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 without the... Um, safety net, the comfort, the veil of the opacity of having the vocals way up front. You can know, you can on this issue, you can hear what I was doing as an arranger in 1995. And in fact, I did a damn good job. A lot of it I would do again, I call it peaks and valleys. But the fact that it's out there, to anybody who would, might be interested in arranging, which is of course anything but a reliable occupation, but for the joy of it, um, there's a lot to be gathered from that from that from that record. With its with its soundtrack, its uh, its, its instrumentals, um, script and bleeding, uh, open for inspection. So I I'm very I, I but I feel good about it generally. I really do. In that specific instance, were you attempting to write something in his voice? No, no, not really. I just, I just, I just, uh, I knew that, that that I hold to this day that uh, the Phil Oaks uh, uh, line in such ugly times, the only true protest is beauty. And I knew that I was determined to make something beautiful. And if I if I did it well, and I got him in a quartet position, that he would he would nail California. That is, with his sonic signature. And so I was holding on to the coattail of a branded man, a man who had become essentially Southern California. So I didn't feel so much like I was leading anybody through anything. I thought I was in great company, an ideal company to do this. The only thing I regretted, and I'm telling you the truth, I did regret that I didn't get him out of bed enough to, to want to, to, to take uh, a more active, uh, that is, a compositional role. But I knew that would come. What I was trying to do only was to prove that he was fodder for the studio should be paid attention to. I owed him so much. And um, 
you know, and as far as I was concerned, listening to the music of 1995, I would say in, in, in large part, I didn't understand it. It was, where's the beef? I did not know where the beef was. And, and, and I thought that it was a, 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 a vacuous era. Vacuity uh, in, in the, the, the signal-to-noise ratio of, of disco music. It just went mad. Music went mad, and, and there was maybe that just that moment where celebration of, of melody and the blessings of a retrograde of hindsight to gain 2020, to remember that a time was a magazine, <laughs> to remember that uh, a time when two bits to buy the coats and jokes at the diner. I wanted at least to project that less planet atmosphere. Not out of a sense of nostalgia, but simply to put that big button on pause, which of course now we see by the hand of Providence Almighty is where we are today. There is a pause given this pandemonium whether people like it or not, a chance to pause. I think that music should often do that, bring things to a reckoning with, with what just happened. Many people don't know what just happened. They don't know what happened today. That's why today is somebody's birthday, like Granado. And in this dumbing of America, with its laugh track, and people are being told what to think. It would be nice to listen to a little Granado. Uh, <laughs> in my, my book, to get out of the hamburger connection, to get out of um, the progress of profit, to escape it, and um, with entertaining musical thought. And so this was my last my last gasp at, at the record label was to be uh, passe, cast my fate to the wind with, with somebody who brought me into the whole thing in the beginning, which was, was Brian Wilson. You know, my mom told me, she said, you know, when, you, when I was a kid, she said, you know, you can go to dance and then dance with anybody you like, but always go home with the same girl. <laughs> you know, never, never, never forget that. Never forget it. And I decided it was important for me to do that, you know, and I know it sounds childish, and it's not. Make new friends, keep the old, one is silver, the other is gold. Get the clue. Friendships of that sort that deserve revisiting. It's, this is what it's all about. It's like it, it, to take the rust off the old social hinge and reinvent a relationship is to learn something that you don't get from the novelty of a nightclub. It's something that you learn to examine as time goes on. And I was not about ready to forget my obligation to Brian. So that's what happened here. The Phil Oaks quote is, a, is an interesting one because obviously for much of his career, he was considered to be a, a, a protest singer, which is inherently political. And I, I'm wondering whether you consider your own music to be political. 
Absolutely. I think everything I do, it must have a political uh, political value that is somehow or another reflective of sociopolitical. That is how you view humanity. It's either to be eaten, be eaten, or it is to generally continue to indulge peer activity. Like, would you talk about collaboration. My great collaborator is the body politic. It's what's going on. It's the present tense that you see uh, an ebullient, like, uh, a buoyancy from. You want to get above the present tense and you have to be in, uh, mindful of it to, to, to reach that clarity. That prismatic clarity that comes from having a political component. Now look, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be we shall overcome. It doesn't have to be this land is your land. You don't have to get everyone up into a parade to, to, to be able to generally confirm uh, your values uh, in your work. And not always like uh, driving your point home uh, like with a ball-peen hammer when all it would require is a tack hammer to do the job. So I, I like to create a degree of subtlety in the work, as good as the, as subtle as the fucking bee is in subtle. That's what it should be. It should be, the work should not always be instructive, but ultimately be uh, consoling, entertaining, proper company. And so I try to put any bitter pills that may be due within a sweet confection. That's what I try to do, try to make things beautiful. Uh, and, 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 but at the same time, you know, when I, in Orange Crate Art, for example, I don't know if you would realize that I'm a rabid, rabid uh, uh, ornithologist. I mean, that is bird lover anyway, bird washer. And, you know, and I mentioned the California Flyway. I only do it once. I mentioned the California Flyway. You know, I'm thinking about things like that. I'm thinking about always in my work an echo sensibility because ecology is job one, always has been. And since 1969, for me, has been part of my a component that is part of what directs me to do things in my work. It's not famous. I'm a miniaturist and um, in a forest of giants. But I do keep ecology front and center in all of my work, even if it's talking about how beautiful the moon is. It's not getting laid in a back seat that really interests me, although I'd like to think that I'd done that to some considerable joy. But there are other things to think about right now. So, I, but I hammer those into my work, even in the toe tappers. I read a, a great quote by you saying that the role of music is to agitate as well as comfort. How do you strike that kind of balance in a single song? Well, obviously, I still need some work on that. I need to learn, and I'll do a better job each time. I will, I promise you. But, but you know, uh, I think it's. I think one can do it if we can take beyond my own work to the work I observe in others. Like you look at. Loud and Wainwright the third. I've always noticed how Loud and Wainwright's songs—they both 
I said, they're so intimate and confessional um, and personal, highly personal, uh, 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 almost invasive to his family, the workings of his family and so forth. And yet, so you get this, they'll mention some the Tom dress, the, 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 the tenderness of all, all these affections, and then they'll, they'll put his fist in your face, give you a little mandible trauma, something that you need to, and then you bring back the triage. So, you know, the chorus is the con- consoler, and then the verse is the thing that, that hits you, sideswipes you, T-bones you. You can do a lot of things in a song. It can be as elastic as, as I have no idea about the dimension songs will take. I just know one thing. I listen to a lot of radio. I listen to many Latin American uh, stations, probably about eight, and I have, and those are on the, on the automatic so that they, they dial into my car, which is paid for. And, um, and then again, I listen to a lot of talent hip-hop and so forth, and I hear stuff that is entirely amelodic, no melody at all, just a bunch of sound effects and stuff that you can't remember, but it has great techniques. So I listen to everything that's going, and, and all alternative uh, music, that is what they call alternative. That means that's the first world pretending that it has an alternative, which it doesn't. It does not. It will on the, on the day that they vote in America. We will learn if we have an alternative left. As it is, it looks like we don't. And I mean that supremely. It's that dangerous right now. And this is because, I, as I say, I'm 77. I got Adelaide Stevenson's autograph. He was running as a Democrat against Eisenhower. I was one of four boys who were entertaining one of his campaign stops in Philadelphia. I got his autograph in the men's room of the hotel. Stevenson had time to do that for a young boy. I remember how articulate he was. He was the guy who stood up to Russia during the Sputnik and uh, the Cuban Missile uh, uh, Crisis and said, and when the Russian uh, ambassador hemmed and hawed at the UN, Stevenson said, please don't wait for the translation, Mr. Ambassador. We know you're speaking. He said, please wait. He said, I'm prepared to wait until a snowball in hell <laughs> as long as the sofa falling out. Stevenson represented the kind of political reality in, from which I come, expecting real answers from real people with, who, have been, who really have been elected. So let's not pretend for a second that in my 77th year that there is any dispute about the urgency of improving our American dream and making everyone a part of it. And it is the job of entertainers to do that. And I happen to be one of the long list, the long list, not the short list, of entertainers around who feel an obligation to make that evident in the work and the artists that he relates to. I do that because we're in a peck of trouble. And I want to take that with a glad heart and put my shoulder to the wheel and kick the can down the road and pull the team. Urgency is not a lack of politesse or etiquette. Urgency is what got us here. And I want to maintain a political 
value in my work, the liberation that it offers, and not to tell an audience what to think, but just to present them not maybe something that is so creative as reflective about who we are. That's what I've been trying to do as people erase that work from the Internet. I am being erased, but so are you if you are a humanitarian. We are being erased by a political reality. I always keep it in mind. It's my job to push back and remind government through entertainment that government is here to follow the arts and sciences. That's why government is here. And this government is doing neither. And so, you know, naturally, when I find myself slipping off Spotify and I see that I am being erased in my, pardon me, eighth decade, it troubles me. Not because of me, but because of the ideas that I've known to be true that are also being erased from civility. Yep, I'm very depressed about it, but I'm not going to let that show in my work. I only want to remember that I should check my privilege at every gate that I may enter and do my best as a musician. And honest to God, that's all I am, just a musician. You've obviously lived through and and seen a lot in your 77 years. Do you see a precedent for the current moment? Does the current moment feel worse or more dire? Well, yeah. Well, you see, I've always I've always uh, wondered about anti-intellectualism. That is that you where you would have to be you have to be scared to be smart. That smart people would get bullied, like Stevenson did. He was called the egghead. No, no, listen here. At when, when the Republican Party started talking about conservatism, to be conservative, that's me, boss. Hello, I'm right of John Muir. Why? I wouldn't give an Indian, a, a Native American, a communicable disease. I realize that we have, we, have, we have so much to do to regain what we've lost in the McCarthy era. Let's talk about Stevenson's era. Why not? My brother went to school with his son. They were roommates. Let's talk about Stevenson. Let's talk about politics and the arts. Pablo Casals played cello at the White House for the Kennedys. I somehow doubt that Mrs. Trump knows who he is or has really any desire to return to Bach. But the arts being so neglected these days. But when I saw the anti-intellectualism hiding in xenophobia, people hiding themselves behind a flag in the face of communism, uh, when the big bomb scares came and I was a child was told to duck and cover, if the bomb hit, I would dive under my desk. We practiced that, you know. We're there. In those dark times, we're, we're there in the anti-intellectualism of those intolerant times. Uh, crow cries are still covering the cornfield. People want to know what is abstract thought. They can't get it. Those are advances that, at the age of reason, 
a seven-year-old child. That, that was Shakespeare's definition, the age of reason at the age of seven. A, a seven-year-old child, why is he called, and why would he have, have reached the age of reason? I ask you, I'll tell you. It's because he is capable then, in uh, normal circumstances, of being able to, under, to grasp abstract thought. It takes abstract thought to believe in anything. Smile was to believe in something, that all things were possible in spite of the fact that we were hosing Negroes in Selma and putting napalm on new Vietnamese children with our bombs. This is a time for abstract thought. This is a time to, to think that we can, because I know we can. I still have, in spite of this, information and informed optimism. And how are we going to get there? It's with music that matters. And it's music that might be out of the box and maybe some of it from in the box too. So, you know, I'd like to say I knew it would end up like this, but I had no clue. I'm not a Presbyterian. I don't know the future. All I know is right from wrong. This is, this is a, our last chance to do right from wrong. And why do I say that? Why do I feel dramatic about it? Because I've listened to the scientists and I believe them. And yet I still believe. So that's what I'm doing with my music daily, every day. People are dropping like flies. People I know it's an insult to the sensibility. It's not fun to be a veteran, except maybe at times when you can take small satisfaction in knowing what you've done and done well. And even if you're lucky, Happy about the things that you chose not to do. And at this point, I feel like I'm getting away with it. I just talk too much on podcast. You jokingly said when we started the interview, let's talk about something. I think you said more trivial, referring to, to music. I mean, obviously, you know, there there was there was humor in that, but you know, do you get the sense sometimes that creating music is a, is a trivial act with all of this other stuff happening in the world? Oh, no, no, no. I was being, I was being cute. The fact is uh, I was being accurate. Uh, the thing is, the, there is nothing more manifest to me, more actual than the language of music. I need it. It's all I can speak. Uh, this, the other stuff is the yip and the yap of the, the me on a podcast is, it, it's, the, it's the death of me. It's the death of you. It'll trash your career. You, you, still have to, you still have time to repent. But if it ever comes to air that we were talking about stuff, oh, yeah, that might be a, only trivial with, in comparison to my concern for your good health, that I want you to be healthy. I want us to feel also enabled by the arts. So we're odd men out. If we could get away from the Grammys for a second, we don't need to compete to support our fellow men. All should be, uh, this is why I speak about the number of people I know who haven't had my good fortune. Uh, great, I mean, I'm talking about the wonderful musicians, and they're all in trouble now. The only thing left for a man of my age is the blessings of uh, FDR, FDR the, the, the social network we have, keeps me in medication. 
pays the rent the most expensive place in America. Believe me, Los Angeles exceeds Queens in terms of square foot rentals. It's a, it is a time to test the musicians for their real loyalty to principle, to doing the right thing. Every time Bob Dylan comes out with a record, I rejoice. How could somebody maintain such a full-star status? Every time a Dylan record comes out, so many guys lose their lives. <laughs> you know, everybody wants to know what Bob was saying. But I think that it shows that basically that there is a liberal tendency. A liberal tendency. What does that mean? It is, a, it is to me, the talent to ask questions, if not to come up with the answer, to come up with the best questions that are available. And Dylan does that. And he does that with the power of melody and spoken voice. Stretched him up. A great talent. Nicholson, I always love to drop a name, Jack Nicholson, once told me he felt that Bob Dylan was the greatest non-singer built. He was because he took this stretched him of his speaking voice to such an elegant, euphonious confection. And... Um, but it isn't, it isn't a political leaning. It's not that I'm trying to sound like, I don't, please don't paint me pink. I'm a son of the American Revolution, but in fact, a private parks served this revolution that created us that is in, incomplete. I take no pride in my ancestors' service. I'm delighted that they served. I wish I could learn something from them. But we have our own revolution to continue. I believe that. And I don't think that it has to do with ultra-right or left any more than I think that Republicans show a sign of being conservative. No. They are rape and run. Look at it. This is not a silk purse. It's a pig's ear. This is what Mitch McConnell has been doing. It's what the surly, racist American Congress did to Obama. It is time for us not to delay justice. I am delighted by the politics. And I'll tell you something. I think the nature of songs is going to really improve songwriting, which is, as you can tell, it's what I love. You know, it's, to me, it's epic. It, it, it is small, but it is epic in, in its proportions. I want to continue to learn from it and write as long as I can in that form, the song form. And I want you to recover from this interview and, and let it not tarnish your ability to ask questions that I can't answer anyway you know i'm curious and especially at this point in in your life and your career whether legacy is something you actively think about and if so do you get a sense of what you would like your lasting legacy to be as a, a, a human or a musician i would like to be known as a person who brought folk idioms that is vernacular music into musical literature i think that this is my best contribution I think uh, that uh, the things that really interest me a lot, not exclusively, but right up there in a vertical hierarchy, right on the top of the tiers, is music that reflects 
folk idiom that when I mentioned Granados being born today, check out Granados. Here's a guitar present in his work. So the, the composers that have embraced folk music have impressed me so much. Louis Moreau Gottschalk of New Orleans. Gottschalk of New Orleans. Incredible. By the way, can't tell you how much it means to me that I played Alan Toussaint's last date on two nested, two nested pianos in a studio. What that means to me, give me a break. I should be able to shut up. I should not be contaminating the airway. So your, your podcast, the cast, the pods you have got. But the, it is the folk music, yes. This is the legacy I would like to leave, that I contributed something, a piece that actually exists, that I gave it a proscenium, that is, and a way, a life force, a way to migrate from our time to the, the next generation. Migrating this, these, these historical documents, rhythms, roots and rhythms, I'm telling you, this to me would be a great legacy to enjoy, that I at least had done something to preserve American culture in its multicultural values. Do you feel a kinship with um, Harry Smith? Well, well... Uh, not not in, in intellectually. I think Harry Smith is a bright. No, I mean they way uh, up there. I mean, and I always admired people with such encyclopedic uh, abilities. But yeah, Harry Smith, Alan Lomax, yeah, the people, the people. I've even liked the, you know, even today. Look here, today, another person who was born today, lest we forget, was Nick Reynolds, who was in the. Kingston Trio. Bob Dylan would not be here, would have been here with Joan Baez one wonderful evening if it hadn't been for the folk music of the Kingston Trio. It takes all these bricks to make a wall. The kind we want, the edifice that is the grandeur of American culture. And uh, But that's it's just amazing to me that uh, yeah, that's that, that I, I like that that uh, the that um, that is my obsession. That the stuff that is most vestigial, that is least useful, most vulnerable. I don't go to feature. Well, no, I don't go to anything now. But I don't attend feature pictures that are pixelated and dazzling display and prominence all over America. The ubiquity of pop culture. No. I seek out the pictures with the subtitles. I can't stop reading while my wife enjoys the pictures from abroad. I like the stuff that is here today and gone tomorrow. I want to learn from those adventures, those diversions. And um, so that's what's happening with me in my work to escape the ubiquity of the static of the bat cave. We have become. You bring up an interesting point, uh, this idea of 
I guess maybe ephemera is, is perhaps a, the best way of, of putting it. And, and I wonder how you relate that back to your own career, how you relate that back to, you know, you mentioned that Orange Crate Art, for example, didn't get the, the release that you, you were hoping for, or something like Song Cycles, which is a, a, a big critical success, but, you know, maybe isn't a, a, a commercial success. Um, you know, do you, do you get that sort of a sense that a lot of your work has kind of an, an, an ephemeral quality to it? All that matters and all I can count is that I'm in black ink. When I get out of red ink, as the song cycle did very handsomely and ably, they just wanted it all that year. But in fact, at Warner Brothers profited greatly from a record they complained about its expenses, which, by the way, were half of what good vibrations cost. So, you know, let's be real. I have learned a great deal from my inquiry. So have many people who have been with me. This was what I was here to do, to learn something and to share it, to be able to give away what I paid dearly to learn. That was my mission. And in that, I feel like I'm a complete success. 